Hello and welcome to Random Interesting Facts, the podcast about everything and nothing, with your host 42. This week's topic is artifacts. So let's dive right in with fact number one. Archaeologists might have got the building of the pyramids completely wrong. If you ask someone to imagine what pyramid builders were like, chances are they would conjure up an image of endless droves of Egyptian slaves, hauling two-ton blocks of stone up a ramp, egged on by a whip-wielding foreman. It's been estimated that it took at least 20,000 workers more than 23 years to build the Great Pyramid. But all of this could be wrong. The pyramids were not built by slaves. They might not be made of blocks of stone. And there's a possibility that far fewer workers were needed to build them. Bold statements, I know. But hear me out. It was the discovery of the Pyramid Builders' settlement by archaeologist Mark Lenner that first challenged the whole slave-builder narrative. He went looking for the city where the 20,000 Giza Pyramid Builders must have lived. In around 1990, he identified the likely harbour location for the quarry stone used at Giza. It was an ancient wadi, which is a desert stream bed that only fills when it rains. And from there, he worked out where the city should have been. Then he found it. And he found not one settlement, but two. The first had grown organically and was probably a permanent settlement. The other was laid out in a grid-like system, bounded on the northwest by a huge wall. Over the following decades, he and his team excavated the site. The foundations of the grid-based city's buildings were around 30 centimetres deep, which implied it had been deliberately raised to the ground, perhaps when the city was no longer needed. But Lenner's team found dozens of bakeries, and the site was littered with animal bones. But the discovery that really shocked the archaeologists was that the workers at the site were probably fed a diet of prime cuts of beef that was certainly not slave food. There were also many buildings that were laid out like private homes, but on a huge scale. Lenny concluded that these were probably barracks for large amounts of workers, but they wouldn't have housed anywhere close to 20,000 men. He surmised that around 1,600 to 2,000 men worked in a rotation of probably about five groups. They were committed to the work through a sense of collective duty called BAP, which was similar to a feudal obligation to a liege. BAP was practiced by every class in Egyptian society, except slaves. Various communities throughout Egypt probably contributed the workers, as well as supplying food and other essentials. This theory, or some approximation of it, that well-fed, well-housed, feudal-style workers and not slaves built the pyramids is now generally accepted. 
Various outlandish ideas have been put forward for how an ancient civilization could have built such improbably huge and intricate structures before handy inventions like diggers and cranes. There are, of course, the usual raft of suggestions from aliens to Atlanteans. But others have gone more inventive, suggesting the Egyptians might have used inflated animal bladders to push the blocks of stone up sealed stone pipes from the River Nile to the top of the half-built pyramid like corks in a bucket of water. This method has been verified through small-scale experiments in the present day. The only problem is, it's a whole other beast when you try to scale up the process. For a start, it's not exactly like the Egyptians had access to gargantuan plastic tubes. And making lengthy tubes from stone would have been seriously impractical. Plus, each two-ton block would have needed dozens of whole inflated animal skins to make it buoyant. So the theory doesn't really hold water. Get it? Sorry. A more plausible time-saving theory was put forward recently by an engineer, Peter James. Whilst restoring the burial chamber of an earlier pyramid, he realised that his team had never drilled through stone more than 40 centimetres thick. This implied that the inside of the stones was probably filled with rubble, and not solid stone all the way through. He concluded that the pyramids of Giza were probably also constructed in this way. And sure enough, we can actually glimpse at the distinct layers of one of the three pyramids of Giza, the Pyramid of Menkori, because a 12th century sultan tried to destroy it. After eight months of intense but futile effort, his men gave up, but they left a deep gash on the outside of the pyramid that exposed the insides and the layers of rubble within. However the Egyptians built the pyramids, they were a seriously ingenious bunch. For a start, they understood geometry, the notions of pi and square roots, and other abstract concepts that would be really helpful when you're trying to perfectly align thousands of really heavy stone blocks. By the time they set about building the Great Pyramid, their knowledge of mathematics was so advanced, they were able to orientate it towards the Sun and the star Sirius with astonishing precision to one fifteenth of one degree of accuracy. Next up, Moments from History. Where each week we look back at one particularly odd moment from the past. In this episode, the time a Nazi saved Paris. Many major European cities were badly damaged during the Second World War. During the Blitz, named after the German word Blitzkrieg, meaning lightning war, more than a million buildings in London were destroyed or damaged. Many famous landmarks such as the Tower of London and St Paul's Cathedral took direct hits. A firestorm during the Blitz destroyed 19 churches, 31 guild halls, and Paternoster Row, home to London's publishing trade, 
along with five million books. Chances are you've never heard of the Queen's Hall, but it was once the most famous concert hall in London and was sadly lost in the Blitz. Well, much of Paris could have been lost forever too. Today, we might not recognize the Louvre, the Eiffel Tower or Notre Dame if Hitler had had his way. Most people have no idea just how close all of Paris came to becoming one big pile of rubble. But whilst most British cities were bombed beyond recognition, the beautiful buildings of Paris are most relatively unscathed. Initially, this was because the Nazis invaded France in 1940, so it never got hit by the Blitz. Although the resident Parisians suffered terribly under Nazi occupation, the city itself didn't, at least for the most part. But in 1944, with the Allies approaching Paris and Germany in retreat, the situation suddenly grew precarious once again for the beautiful city. Now, it's fair to say Hitler wasn't the sharing kind. So he wanted Paris razed to the ground before the Allies arrived to take it from him. On the 23rd of August 1944, he sent a cable to the German governor of Paris, General Dietrich von Koltitz. It said, Paris must not pass into the enemy's hands except as a field of ruins. And so explosives were laid at various bridges and monuments around Paris, ready for the order to detonate. Key landmarks such as the Eiffel Tower, cultural buildings like the Louvre, bridges and communications, utility networks were to be destroyed. But mercifully, it didn't happen. When Hitler allegedly phoned von Koltitz and screamed, Is Paris burning? Von Koltitz pretended it was happening, when in reality, he'd given no such order to his men. Instead, two days later, he surrendered Paris, relatively unscathed, to the Free French. The Nazi attempt to destroy Paris didn't quite end there as Hitler sent the Luftwaffe on an incendiary bombing raid on the 26th of August. And V2 rockets were fired from Belgium, causing extensive damage to the city, but nothing compared to what could have been. Ever since, von Koltitz has been hailed as the Nazi hero who saved Paris, he did so, he said, because destroying it would have been a futile gesture. He'd grown to appreciate and love the city's history and culture, and he now believed Hitler was insane. Really, Koltitz? It took you that long? He was also swayed over to Paris's side by Raoul Nordling, the Swedish Consul General in Paris. We know about von Koltitz's role in saving Paris, largely because he told us about it in a 1950 memoir called Brent Paris, Is Paris Burning? Though there is independent evidence supporting it as well. A film and some books subsequently reinforced the narrative and many French people today regard him as Paris's saviour. 
When he died, his funeral was attended by high-ranking French officials in recognition for what he did for Paris and for France. However, in subsequent years, and largely because the primary source for the story was Coltitz himself, there has been growing scepticism about his true motivation for saving the City of Light. The alternative version is that Coltitz was an opportunist who saw the way the wind was blowing and reacted accordingly. He was going to be captured within days anyway, so why not use this opportunity to get on the best terms he could with the victors and his future captors? It's questionable whether von Koltitz even had the resources for a large-scale destruction of Paris, and the contribution of the French resistance movement in thwarting the destruction is underplayed in his version of events. But whether you view Koltitz as a self-serving opportunist or Paris's eternal saviour, the end result was that he did indeed save Paris, at least to some extent. Sure, he didn't have enough firepower to destroy Paris completely, but he could have done a substantial amount of damage had he wanted to. Instead, he chose not to issue the order to blow up anything. He handed Paris safely over to the Allies and actively deceived Hitler in the process. So, yes, I'll still call him the Nazi who saved Paris. But this leads us to a bit of a sticky ethical dilemma. Should we really celebrate someone who did an act of goodness, even though he'd previously done great evil? Until Lowe's last days in Paris, he'd been an ardent supporter of Hitler, and he had no qualms about destroying another city, Sevastopol, in 1941 and 42. It was bombed with such intensity that only 11 buildings in the city remained undamaged. He was also in command when Rotterdam was heavily bombed in 1941, so what changed in Paris? This is a morality debate that's been raging ever since World War II and long before. Were the Nazis responsible for their own actions, or were they simply following orders under threat of execution? To this day, we still don't have a solid answer to that question. Now we'll take a short break, and very soon we'll be back with fact number two. Fact number two. Ancient civilizations had futuristic technology. There's a mysterious allure to the idea of our ancient ancestors possessing advanced technology. Is it evidence of alien intervention thousands of years ago? Nah, probably not. But are we now only catching up with some of our tech-savvy ancestors? Possibly. Were there civilizations before the age of the dinosaurs that we'll never know about? because any evidence of their existence has been crushed to an undetectably thin layer of sediment in ancient rocks? Perhaps, and we might never know. But it's certainly fun to postulate these what-ifs. However, we have found some really intriguing artefacts from more recent time periods, such as over the past 6,000 years, 
that have shone a light onto the bewilderingly advanced technology our ancestors might have possessed. I've already extensively covered one of the most extraordinary, the Antikythera Mechanism, an ancient Greek astronomical device in an episode on my YouTube channel. But there are plenty more to talk about, such as the Baghdad Battery, dated to around 200 BC. It's a clay jar with a stopper made of asphalt, containing an iron rod in a copper cylinder. It was discovered by a German archaeologist in 1938, and it looks remarkably like a rudimentary battery. And indeed, when filled with vinegar, the jar produces up to 2 volts of electricity, enough to electroplate metal. If that's the case, and it seems likely, why don't we see evidence of more electrical devices from that time period in Persia? Given the way technology usually develops, with one idea sparking another, why didn't this discovery seed some kind of electrical revolution? There are other examples too of advanced mechanisms that, to our knowledge, existed as a singular exception, such as the hydraulic self-opening doors at a temple in Alexandria from the 1st century which were designed, it seems, to provoke an air of wonder and mystery around the workings of the temple. The doors took several hours to open themselves, so it was only set in motion once a day. But since they went to all the trouble of inventing a hydraulic mechanism just for this one party trick, why didn't hydraulics suddenly take over ancient Greece? and become commonplace in other, more practical applications. A very effective seismoscope, or earthquake detector, known as the Hofeng Didongyi, dates to around 2000 years ago in China. Again, it seems to be a one-off. Although its inventor, Zhang Heng, was something of a polymath, dabbling in astronomy, math, science, engineering, cartography and poetry, amongst other things. And of course, it's also extremely likely that there's many other technologically advanced artifacts that have been lost to the ravages of time. But the fact remains that none of these ancient bits of tech seems to have prompted a large or even modest scale technological revolution, as we've observed firsthand over the past couple of centuries with the Industrial Revolution. And one has to ask, why? Were the ancients just not curious enough? Did they invent these miraculous devices with technology way ahead of their time and then sit down and proclaim, well, that was a hoot, but I don't think I can really be bothered taking it any further? Hmm, it seems unlikely. The Mesopotamians, Egyptians, Greeks, Chinese and many other cultures all show evidence of deeply inquisitive minds. In exploring engineering, maths, philosophy, astronomy, and the physical exploration of our world. So perhaps the answer lies in another direction. There is that well-known phrase, necessity is the mother of invention. And it certainly holds true for many of the advances we've made in the West during the two world wars. Take the Enigma machine, for example the mother of all computers. There's nothing quite like the enemy blowing up your boats on a daily basis 
to create the urgency needed to think outside the box and invent the computer. So perhaps the answer is that in antiquity, there was no sense of urgency. Either inventions were seen purely as entertainment or some kind of trivial intellectual pursuit, or they just didn't deem it necessary to apply their capabilities to everyday life. The Greeks, for instance, had the knowledge and ability to develop agricultural machinery. But they didn't, because they had an abundance of slaves to do that work. Slaves were cheap and dispensable, so why would they go to the effort to create something they didn't need? Sometimes a civilization invented or discovered something without properly understanding the underlying principles of how it worked. The Chinese invented gunpowder without knowing why it blew up. And the chances are the inventor of the Baghdad battery just stumbled upon electroplating completely by accident and didn't have a clue about the underlying chemical and electrical science. So perhaps we should just celebrate the exceptional. Those inventors who created something amazing just out of the sheer love of invention, and then left it to be dug up and marveled at thousands of years later. Fact number three. There are massive stone heads all around the world. The most famous colossal stone heads are the Mawai of Easter Island, embedded in the grassy banks overlooking the sea, built by the ancient Polynesians between 1100 and 1500 AD. But there are many more in locations as diverse as Nemrut Dag in Turkey, the Gulf Coast of Mexico and China. But there's more to all of these heads than meets the eye. Quite literally, in the case of the Mawai of Easter Island, because dig a little deeper under the surface and you'll find they have bodies, the tallest of which stands at 10 meters. Many have been submerged up to their shoulders through centuries of volcanic sediment. Archaeologists have known about their bodies since they began excavating the site in 1914. But this information hasn't become widely known until recently. In May 2012, when it was reported that the statues on Easter Island were not just heads, but full figures, bodies and all, the Easter Island Statue Project's website crashed, as 3 million visitors from all around the world suddenly logged on to ask whether this was some kind of belated April Fool's joke. So why did these millions of confused keyboard warriors and, well, pretty much everyone else on the planet, picture the Easter Island heads as just heads for so long? Well, it's probably because the most picturesque statues are on the grassy banks looking out to sea, and these ones just so happen to be visible from only the neck upwards. But if people had searched for images of other parts of the island, at any point during the past hundred years, they would have found that there have been other statues sitting there where their body is quite clearly visible above the ground. The evidence has always been there for people to see, if they wanted to find it. Which just goes to show the power a single image can have 
in swaying the perception of millions of people. I suppose there's some kind of romantic metaphor to be found here, like, always look beneath the surface. Meh, perhaps I'll leave you to think up a better one. Archaeologists have documented 887 Mawai so far, but there's thought to be thousands on the island. They were carved by the Rapa Nui people and are thought to honour ancestors and leaders. The heads at Nemrut Dag in Turkey, which stand high on a mountain at the foot of a man-made mound, were also once heads at the top of whole statues that have since been buried by the elements. The tallest was around 9 metres in height. They were erected between 69 and 34 BC. Commissioned by the late Hellenistic king Antiochus I of Commagene. Ostensibly as a monument to the great kings, but of course the great kings included King Antiochus himself. Well, isn't that convenient? The Olmec colossal stone heads of Mexico, however, were actually just built as heads created between 1200 and 400 BC. The 17 heads discovered so far can be found at San Lorenzo and Leventa on the Gulf Coast of Mexico. They have unique naturalistic features and are believed to be portraits of actual rulers. I think I'd be pretty insulted if I was one such ruler to be honest, because these statues are damn ugly. Seriously, if you ever see these things, you'll know what I mean. They look like giant fat babies that have been smacked in the face with a frying pan. The Olmec people believed the heads contained an individual's emotions, experiences, and his soul. The practice of deifying people through the erection of giant heads may be ancient, but it hasn't gone away. New ones have been carved out very recently including the head of a young Mao Zedong at Changsha in China, Albert Einstein in Panama City, and of course, the presidents of Mount Rushmore. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Riff. I really hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, then please rate, review and subscribe so you never miss one. And if you have your very own random interesting facts that you're dying to share with me, please tweet it at me using the hashtag RIFFPodcast. That's hashtag R-I-F-Podcast. Thank you. <laughs>